Hello and welcome to Science Matters, the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. A fury is building on the surface of the sun. Jets of super hot gas. Rising waves of fire. You may remember from Science Matters Season 1, our conversation with John Wise, the Dunn Family Associate Professor in the School of Physics. His work on computer simulations and visualizations of the birth of supermassive suns and black holes give Wise and fellow scientists a chance to turn back the clock to the beginnings of the universe. Journey into our star. to explore its inner workings. For this Science Matters episode, we go from the massive to the microscopic. J.C. Gumbart also creates simulations, but this School of Physics associate professor goes in the other direction. He works on the atomic scale, picturing the possible movements of atoms and molecules. New computer programs developed to simulate complex behaviors on the K-computer reproduce the movements of tens of millions of water molecules. In thousands this video from Japanese Science Research Institute, Riken, shows a simulation visualizing those movements at the atomic level. It's called molecular dynamics. Gumbart says the method started to be used in research in the late 1970s. As computational power increased over the years, the quality of simulations improved. So what do molecular dynamics do for Gumbart's research? We're trying to represent in, a, in as realistic a way as possible all the atoms involved in the system, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's a protein or maybe a protein in a membrane, uh, some collection of biological molecules. Molecular dynamics is essentially using the, the principles of physics, particularly uh, classical mechanics, Newton's second law, mm-hmm. F equals ma, uh, but just applying it to thousands of atoms simultaneously. Newton's second law, F equals ma. Force equals mass times acceleration. The force being applied to an object is equal to its size and how fast its speed changes. Thanks to powerful software, molecular dynamic simulations mix those forces and objects on the atomic scale, allowing researchers to study how their movements evolve over a set period of time. Where can this type of research lead? Gumbart says it's already showing some promising signs in battling antibiotic resistance. That's a growing medical problem that's estimated to add $20 billion in additional annual health care costs. In another case, his research team's molecular dynamic simulations gave Colorado doctors a new direction to consider regarding a certain protein deficiency. At the very least, these simulations give scientists like Gumbart a chance to approach problems in a new way. And given advances in computational power... More progress could be coming soon. So what this is allowing us to do is simulate both larger and longer. So larger gives us access to more and more realistic systems. So like I said, we're on the million atom scales. Some people are pushing the envelope up to a billion atoms. Uh, And I think within my lifetime, we'll see it get to the point where you could simulate even an an entire small cell, like like an E. coli bacterium, which might be on the order of 10 to 100 billion atoms. And then on the time scale, we're, we're still pretty limited in, uh, in the tens of microseconds, perhaps. Uh, but that, that's also growing. And so that will allow us to simulate more and more pro- biological processes on realistic time scales. 
living cell is made of many molecules, macromolecules. In fact, the living cell has as many macromolecules as the United States as citizens. And that's a very good comparison because these molecules in the cell form a society. They assemble and they work together. That is the late biophysicist Klaus Scholte, considered a founding father of molecular dynamics, giving a TED talk in 2010. While electron microscopes get science closer to molecules, they can't make them move or determine their destinations. Computer simulations, said Scholten, turn molecules into citizens of their own molecular society. It is a computer that is actually today finally permitting us to see the citizens at work. The citizens that in some cases just built pipes and in some other cases amazing machines that read the, the, the genetic information and turn it into new proteins of the cell or to, to harvest the sunlight to solve the energy problem of nature. Gumbart actually learned from Schulten while working on his doctorate at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. So uh, I had gone there, uh, started in the physics program, uh, initially thinking maybe I was going to do something that's more traditionally thought of as physics, like condensed matter. But I found myself continually gravitating towards the computational aspects of the project I was working on, the, the modeling of the experimental setup, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was already a sign that perhaps computation was for me. And then I took a biophysics class just as part of a, as an elective and uh, I was just really hooked by it immediately. And so I started looking into what labs I could join. This was still my first year. Mm -hmm. uh, and I ended up joining the lab of uh, the late Klaus Scholten there, uh, who was one of the leaders in the field of molecular dynamic simulations. Okay. Uh, and so then it really just grew from there, my, my interest and in, in work in the field. I interviewed John Weiss mm -hmm. uh, uh, during season one of Science Matters about his deep space simulations, mm -hmm. vis visualizations. And he says it's like rewinding space and time to help research the origins of black holes and where stars and certain kinds of stars come from. So I'm wondering what do simulations reveal for your research? So that's, uh, that's a, uh, actually a very good comparison in the sense that I think both of us uh, view our simulations as uh, a way to watch what's happening on a scale that's normally inaccessible to us. You can't go all the way back in time to the beginning of the universe. And similarly with our simulations, they act as like a computational microscope giving us access to a small scale that's inaccessible to experiments or at least under realistic uh, uh, natural conditions. Beyond just, uh, you know, sort of setting it, letting it go and mm -hmm. seeing as it evolves in time, we can make perturbations, we can apply forces, we can say uh, model a mutation, just to give an, an example of this. Uh, we worked, we recently published a paper, uh, or we were involved in a team that published a paper in Journal of Experimental Medicine uh, a few mo a month ago, where uh, they had found uh, in a patient at uh, the University of Colorado Denver Medical School a uh, severe immunodeficiency caused by a single point mutation in a protein. And we modeled that mutation and were able to suggest why it may, lead, it may compromise the protein's function leading to this deficiency. You're not just looking for solutions to particular issues or applications for what you're learning here. You're just trying to fill knowledge gaps also. In, 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 in large how proteins part, yes. work and all that. Yeah. 
and and you know the the human genome codes for on the order of twenty thousand proteins and you know, we'd like to understand how every single one works. Mm -hmm. And that was something that only became, came to fruition, what, last decade? Something along those lines? Yes. Thanks to Craig exactly. Benner and, and, and those folks. And yeah, so that was about two decades ago yeah. uh, when they first sequenced the genome. But uh, like, like many times in science, what was initially seen as perhaps uh, the, the pinnacle of achievement was really just the starting point. Mm -hmm. and, and now we're trying to untangle uh, everything we can learn from the genome, uh, how it leads to the proteins and how those lead to function. All kinds of organisms evolve from humans on down. Unfortunately, for the last couple of decades, that includes disease-causing bacteria that have grown to resist the most commonly used antibiotics. Molecular dynamic simulations have helped Gumbart and other scientists understand what goes on inside these bacteria, especially what are called gram-negative bacteria. Gram-positive bacteria have one cell membrane. Gram-negative have two, making it extra tough for antibiotics to fight through. Gram-negative bacteria are behind some of the most common infections, such as E. coli-related illnesses, pneumonia, and gonorrhea. That's because they usually develop something called efflux pumps, insidious defense mechanisms designed to keep you sick longer than you want. I like all our projects, sure. but uh, it, uh, one of the most exciting ones is um, looking at the multi-drug efflux pumps of bacteria. So in particular, gram-negative bacteria like E. coli uh, or Pseudomonas. Uh, they, one of the innate resistance mechanisms of these bacteria is uh, the, that they express these efflux pumps, which pump antibiotics and other harmful molecules out almost as fast as we can give it to them. The, 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 the molecule itself is doing this, or the... the well, so that it's a pro the, the efflux pro pump is a protein, is a complex of proteins, actually, uh, that sits between the inner and outer membranes of these gram-negative bacteria. And so as antibiotics come in, uh, they get pumped right back out by this, uh, preventing a, a buildup and, and keeping the bacteria alive. And mm -hmm. so we're actually working with a team, including uh, Helen Zagurskaya at uh, University of Oklahoma, also Jeremy Smith and Jerry Parks at Oak Ridge National Lab, mm -hmm. to uh, model the, both uh, the assembly and function of these pumps uh, and then also look for new uh, small molecules that could inhibit uh, their formation. Uh, and so in that sense, it would be like a one-two punch. If you can uh, knock out the efflux pump, what, uh, what our collaborator Helen has shown is that uh, then the bacteria become resensitized to existing antibiotics, which they might otherwise be resistant to. We're looking at it from lots of different angles. So uh, like I mentioned, the one about efflux pumps, one of the innate resistance mechanisms. Uh, we've done a little bit of work on, for example, macrolide antibiotics, which uh, bind to the bacterial ribosome uh, and, and thinking about ways they can be possibly modified to evade resistance there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, also looking for new targets. So uh, one of the main uh, projects in the lab is looking at how outer membrane proteins get made by these gram-negative bacteria. It's a protein system called the BAM complex, mm -hmm. uh, and we've been involved in, in that effort since the, uh, really since the first structures came out uh, now about six years ago, I was involved in that work. And so there, these are proteins that are uh, uh, absolutely necessary for bacteria to grow and to survive, 
and so if we understand how they function, then we can possibly uh, make suggestions for small molecules that can inhibit them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could be a new uh, uh, source of a new class of antibiotics. Proteins that may be behind the development of diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are also on Gumbart's radar. These diseases show abnormal protein buildups, or plaques, that drape nerve connections and cells with sticky deposits. Atanu Acharya is a postdoc I just hired in, in the last few months. He actually uh, came, came on board with a project that he's been working on for a while, looking at the uh, formation of these uh, helices in Alzheimer's plaques, so these fibrils. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they've actually, they have developed a small molecule that uh, he and his uh, previous lab that they think may inhibit the formation. And so that's something we're starting to look at now. So yeah. to be clear, it's actually uh, Alzheimer's disease is really quite a conundrum in that uh, so far every attempt to uh, prevent it using our our currently accepted model for how it how it comes about has failed yeah. uh, and you see uh, even just in the last couple of months drug trials getting to say phase two and then or phase three even and failing mm -hmm. uh, so there's still a lot of uncertainty surrounding it but I think uh, we, we have to keep trying things perhaps one thing to just highlight is that our models are getting better and better uh, so there's always some uncertainty when you're trying to model a, a system from nature. You know, we're going to get some things wrong, some approximations, uh, but really the field has reached a level of maturity that even wasn't present when, when I started this about 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, and it's uh, because of this, because of this uh, maturation and, and in terms of the quality of our models, uh, it's becoming increasingly accepted by experimentalists, our, our results are, are uh, increasingly in agreement mm -hmm. with theirs. And so we're really finding uh, this nice synergy developing where we can uh, both explain the results from their experiments where they may not have the detailed information that we can access, mm -hmm. and we can also even predict the outcomes of new experiments based on our simulations. In addition to his work in the School of Physics, J.C. Gumbart is a member of the Petit Institute for Bioengineering and Bioscience. His research is currently funded by the National Institutes of Health and the National Science Foundation. I'd like to thank Gumbart for his time. Check out his SIMBAC, Simulations of Bacterial Systems Lab website at simbac.gatech.edu. Our thanks to Riken Research Institute and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for the use of audio. Cyan Joe, a former research associate with the School of Psychology, composed our theme music. If you like Science Matters, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find us at Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. This is Science Matters, the podcast of the Georgia Tech College of Sciences. I'm Renee San Miguel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>